Since we've uh, <coughs> just begun the month of Kislev and we're moving towards Hanukkah, let's see if we can look at the uh, subject that this month brings up, which is the question, the subject of miracles, because Hanukkah occupies a a unique spot, a unique place in, in history, in Jewish <coughs> history, and it's the question of miracles which really, which really bring it out. <coughs> I mean, basically, the idea is that Hanukkah was the last time that we saw a revealed miracle. In fact, on a deeper level, it is a junctional zone between the kinds of miracles, the kind of miracles that occurred before that point in history, and the kind that we have, uh, <coughs> that we see, that we see thereafter. Let's see if we can try to put in context the, put the history in context, and see then <coughs> if we can feel out the the difference, conce- the, the the concept of lying behind this this process. <coughs> First of all, <coughs> let's start at the beginning. There's an idea that lights that are lights that shine, to, to use a more mystical sort of notion, are always they come always in two in, in paired in, in, in two versions. There's a pairing. There's a first experience or first light which is always the higher one, and then there's a second one which is lower, much less in intensity, but has much more significance from a different perspective. <coughs> the translation into human experience is that, again, uh, deeper sources, the Kabbalistic sources are, are full of this idea, but Translated into practical human experience, the world consists always of things that are easy at first and then become difficult later, or things that are inspired, things that are inspiring in the beginning and then become hard work later. The, um, there's a natural process, a natural pathway in the world. <coughs> the world is constructed in such a way that the pathway of our experience is that we first have experiences, as it were, for free, and then when the experience has been internalized, or usually at the most critical moment when you feel that it's become so internalized and it's so secure and so part of you that this ecstasy, this inspiration will never end, it's exactly at that moment that it's taken away. The reason the world's designed that way is because you need the inspiration of the first phase to lift you to your potential or to show you at least what your potential is or in more mundane terms to teach you what it is that's expected and what you're capable of and then since the world is created not for free gifts but for your work then at that point it's taken away and the second light as it were that shines is the one that you have to shine it's nothing compared to the first one it's the novice struggling in a very amateurish fashion compared to the mastery that was demonstrated by the expert beforehand. But of course, this is the one that's meaningful. This is the one that's, 
a genuine achievement. Uh, if you want a, um, a very simple analogy, it would be that when the father, let's say, teaches a child to walk, he will take the child by the hands, and the small child will be lifted to his feet for the first time, and then he will take his first step in a way that is ultimately secure, because he has the thrill of knowing that he's taking his first step, but not only that, he can't fall because his abba is holding his hands. When the child feels the thrill of taking his first step with all that security, is at that moment that the father lets go, because in order to learn to walk, there has to come a phase where your hands aren't held anymore. And what happens then is that the first emotion is one of abandonment, perhaps even betrayal, of fear, of being left alone, and of having been brought into the situation of, <coughs> of, of fear by the one, not only whom you trusted, but was responsible for giving you this inspired experience in the first place. That's a very tragic and painful situation, but it is, of course, in that situation of anxiety, where the child is left alone, is, of course, that's where he learns to walk. And he then realizes many things. He then realizes that the first step, the step he took before when his father was holding his hands, <coughs> was only an illusion of walking. That had the ecstasy of guaranteed success. But in fact, it was only an illusion of walking, because really, it's only when he learns to do it independently that he understands. And of course, it's only after going through that crisis that he can be embraced by his father and return the embrace, knowing that only then knowing that when he was abandoned, as it were, was, although, although it's paradoxical, in that moment of abandonment was a greater love shown by his father than in the moment when his father held his hands. Right? That's the way the world is designed to... That's how things are designed to be. If you weren't shown first, if you weren't lifted in that situation beyond your capacity, you would never know that such a thing is possible. On the other hand, if you were lifted in that situation and permanently maintained in that situation, you would never do it yourself. And therefore, the pattern of the world is always two phases. There's an inspired beginning, which is free, and then there's a letdown where you have to generate what you had before the hard way. But of course, the second one is the one that's... Um, the second one is the one that's meaningful. And this pattern f- follows through <coughs> everywhere in life. It's the reason that relationships, for example, are naturally exciting and inspiring when there's the phase of discovery, and that they always fall into a phase of challenge where the newness and the inspiration is no longer there, and then the meaning in a relationship is what's built, not what's there for free. In a very crude and vulgar, extremely low, battered and... uh, etc., parlance of of the modern age, the first we would call romance and the second we would call love. Romance is that notion of emotion which really, in Hebrew there's no word for that. In Torah there's no word for romance. Because it's a it's essentially an illusion. You have to understand this. It's only of course an illusion. The first light is an illusion only with respect to the tachlis, only with respect to what is meant to be built here. It's, it's very, very real in its own sense, of course. In a, in, from the higher perspective, it's much more real. Because it's perfect. <coughs> but it's illusory in terms of the work that has to be done. And therefore, that's a phase. We have no real word for that in Hebrew. The second phase in a relationship, which is where there's genuine giving, not receiving. The romance is a phase where nothing's really been given. It's only the thrill of, of 
an artificial experience, really. <coughs> that gives way in a successful relationship to a commitment. The commitment in... Yes, involves a giving. The word ahava in Hebrew is based on the root hav, which means to give. Ahava in Hebrew adds up to 13, the same as the word echad, which means one. When, two, when one has learned to so negate the ego that, that one can give oneself away to another so intensely that there's no, there's no ego there that obstructs that gift, then the two can genuinely become one. But that's a tremendously hard work. Tremendously hard work. And that, of course, is that's the genuine experience. So the romance is designed, that so-called romantic phase is designed in the world only as a, a false sense of inspiration so that there can be some awakening of what the potential of this... Because the, the romantic phase has an intimation of something far greater than it can even be expressed. Right? And, and of course, the moment that romance dies is exactly that moment when it appears it will last forever. It takes very little to take away romance. Marriage, for example, is enough to... <laughs> <coughs> that is, that's the way the world is designed. That's a battered and fallen example, but that's the way it is. In a higher Matama Elion, if you want to put it into its higher context, for example, the way the the Gemara says, just there are many examples just to choose one. The Gemara says that when the child is yet in the womb, he is exposed, the child is given the entire, the complete spiritual knowledge. The way that Gemara puts it is that the unborn child is taught the whole Torah. An angel, a malach, teaches the child the whole Torah, which means really, translated into more tangible terms, it means the child sees the whole of the spiritual world. He sees, he understands all of the world. The, the Gemara says that a light is lit above his head and he sees from one end of the world to the other by that light. It really means, of course, a light lit over the head. It means inner vision. That's what it means. If you, want to sh- if you want someone to see something, you don't shine a light on the person. You shine a light on the object. If you shine a light on my head, it doesn't help me see anything. Obviously, what this means is an inner vision. It means the light, there's an inner light. That, that's the nature. That light, that that light that's lit on the child's head is the first light. That's free. It's automatic. The child doesn't work for that. This unborn child experiences the whole of the spiritual world. He knows his own path in life, he knows his own success, he knows what he's capable of, he knows at one end of the world to the other. That's what it means. That's why it says, Mi yitneni ki kedem. Who could give me like those months of ki yeah, me like the days when Hashem protected me. It's an inexpressible level <coughs> that the child and then, of course, what happens is the child is born and the light is taken away. And he's born as a simple child who knows nothing in the world, who has to learn the hard way what life's all about. But, of course, the effect is that it's not really taken away. When the Gemara says that Ba Malach, an angel comes with Satroy al Piv, strikes the child on the mouth as he's born, and takes away all the wisdom, really what's meant is, of course, that the wisdom's driven inward. It doesn't mean... It doesn't mean that it's lost. There'd be no point in teaching a child all of spiritual wisdom only to take it away. That's completely pointless. What happens is that the word shikha, the word meaning to forget, right, there are amazingly deep things here. In Hebrew, the word shikha, to forget, umashakha is kolatari, the child forgets the whole Torah, means that it's driven into a deep, it's driven into a deep layer of subconscious that takes a special spiritual effort, a special deep meditational training that we call zakhira, memory. Memory doesn't mean going back in time to, uh, you know, something that happened to you once. 
you have to understand, the word, the word zakhar, the root of memory, as opposed to shikha, meaning to the darkness of choshech, of shikha, of forgetfulness, that work of memory, the Hebrew word zakhar in Hebrew, means also zecher, means also zecher, memory and zakhar, the male, the male, as opposed to female, the same word in Hebrew. What's the connection? Understand, amazing thing. What's the connection between maleness and memory? The connection is that is this, when the child is formed within the mother and finally born, the father, the male dimension contributing to the birth of the child is way back in time. It was only the beginning of a seed. <coughs> all that the male contributes to the formation of a child is a genetic suggestion, that's all, it's only a seed. In Hebrew the word zikaron has the same num- meaning a memory, has the same numerical equivalent as the word zera meaning a seed. Because a seed is nothing other than a memory of the previous generation. That's all a seed is, nothing else. All a seed is, the seed of an acorn, an acorn, of an acorn the seed of an oak tree. If you look inside there, you won't find a small oak tree. All you find is a compressed memory of what an oak tree is. And given the female earth, then the seed brings out the oak tree. That's what it is. So memory means being able to go back beyond the pregnancy, back beyond the phase of formation, be, to the stage that's called the male to the stage that's called, and that's, that's what Zechira means. That's what Zech, Zikaron means. It means to be able to go back to the stage when you were but the seed that contained the tree before it began to be expressed altogether. So as the child is born, he enters a phase called Shikha, where he forgets. And the work is not to learn new information, but to remember the information. This, incidentally, is the reason why when you learn something spiritually true, if you're a sensitive individual, you do not have the sensation that you're learning something, you have the sensation that you're recognizing something. It connects with something deeply, of which you've been deeply aware, but you never, it brought a clarity. There's no, there's no learning of anything in the world, as a, in, in the sense of things being put in. There's only a deep sense of connecting with that which you, and of course that is how you know it's true. The reason that you learn something spiritually true, or something about the world that's true, and you have a measure within yourself of knowing that it's true, it rings true, it resonates, with what does it resonate? How, how, how don't, Again, when you hear something false or something true, how can you respond differently? In both senses, it should just be a fact that goes in. But the reason is you respond differently to something that's true because it's already locked within. And it's unlocked by this connection with the external. I'm sure you're thinking with me. I'm sure you're already ahead of me, no? What did the Greeks try to do to us? To make us forget. To make us forget. That's what it says. To make us forget the whole Torah. They darken, they cause the Choshech, Yavan is called Choshech, it's called darkness. Choshech al the darkness on the deep, that's called Greece. And the Greeks, the expression is that they came to make us forget, right? That was their aim, was to make us forget Torah. Torah is that light that shone above the head of the child when he's unborn. And the whole Greek ethos was to make us part of a tangible world, a world of immediate experience, of philosophical derivations, of aesthetics with the body exposed, art for art's sake, and all the, all the aesthetics of the world without connection to the Torah source. That's what the Greeks, they darkened the eyes right, of the, the Jewish people in an effort to make them forget the, the source. That's what Greece, of course, was. So let's try and put this together. There's a phase where the child has all spiritual wisdom, then he's born and he forgets it all. And the second phase of his life is the very hard work 
of recapturing that which he had at a cosmic level before, piecemeal, slowly, painfully, wrong steps, in order to, get, to, to, to find, discover right steps, until finally the purpose of his life is to regain the spiritual wisdom that he had when he began. You see this in many ways. One example is the Talmud. Another place in the Talmud says that when a person dies, there are three angels that come to greet you. A person dies, three angels come to greet you. One comes to add up all your mitzvahs, one comes to add up all your virus, your transgressions, and one comes to see, Where's your Torah, and is it complete in your hand? If you're a man, essentially it means Torah learning, which is the essential activity in the world, and if you're a woman, it means Torah expression in the world, chesed, teres chesed, it means bringing kindness into the world, bringing expression, bringing the seed to fruition in the world. That's essential female quality. But whichever it is, you expect it to reach the next world with the Torah, Torah of your life intact in your hand. The third angel comes to see whether that's been done. The Gaon of Vilna, in an unforgettable, unforgettable elucidation, the Gaon says that when the three angels come to greet you, that third one which comes to see whether your Torah is being complete, as he moves towards you, you recognize his face. He turns out to be the one who taught you Torah when you were an unborn child, gave you the whole of spiritual wisdom and your role within it, and now at the end of your lifetime he's anxiously coming back to greet you, to ask whether all that you learned together, all that he learned with you in the phase of your own conception and pregnancy, whether you've brought that into the world. Right? That was your chavrusa, this angel, and he comes to see if you... So again, what you see the pattern is being given it for free, at the moment of total, of complete inspiration, having it taken away, and then the purpose, the long, dark battle through the night of the world, is to remember, that's all, that's all it consists of. It's such a pure memory, such a pure meditation, that you memorize, you can, you can remember <coughs> your own, the spiritual knowledge that's locked, that's locked within. No? That's, that's what it means. Lahashkicham Torah that's what it says. Lahashkicham Torah The Greeks come to make, to make the Jews forget your Torah. Right? You see what the Greeks did in the darkness of winter here, right, is that the Greeks came to say that the world has no higher connection. The world is, the world is as you see it. Aristotle taught, for example, that time has always existed. Right? The Rambam discusses this Aristotelian idea. That there's no such thing as creation from nothing. Time has always existed. Right? It's all a natural... The, uh, empirical science. Right? We examine the world. We make conclusions. We don't look to that which transcends the world. That's what the, that was the Greeks came to do. They didn't come to teach a false god. Greece was not an idolatrous in the true sense. On the contrary, the Greeks, if, if you remember correctly, the Greeks lived, the Greek exile was after the phase when the desire for idolatry had been exorcised from the human mind. Then Sheikh Nessus Sagdele, the men of the great assembly, during the last generations of prophecy, exorcised, expunged, they excised from the human mind the desire to worship idols. So the whole Greek exile was in a post- prophetic and post-idol worship age. The Greeks didn't come to sell idols. On the contrary, they had effigies and, and icons. But the concept of Greece was that there isn't, not that there's a, a different God, but that there's no God. That the world itself is its own explanation. That's all we, we, we don't look beyond the, the surface mechanism and the surface aesthetics. That itself contains its own explanation. <sighs> to bring you down, you know what the Hebrew word Yaven means? Tita Yaven. You know what it means in Hebrew? It means quicksand. That's what Yavan means. 
Yavan means, and some even say the graphics of the letter, in Hebrew it's Yud Vav Nun, small, longer, long. It's that which draws you down into the sand and makes you part of the, right? It's like the, the, depths, the, the depths that suck you down and make you part of... That is Greek philosophy, is that you are part of a natural, you are a natural being, part of a natural order. That's called drowning. Drowning means to become part of the medium. To sink into nature. And of course, that's why the victory over Greece is celebrated by a miracle, which is that which transcends nature. I mean, it's so obvious when you think these things through. Why is, why is Hanukkah celebrated by that which is a light, which is a very small light that you light, which is miraculous? The concept here is that you rekindle a light after the first, the light of prophecy, the light of the first of the menorah, the light in the, in the Besamekdash. You know what the light of the menorah was? It was a light by which you could see through things. The Gemara says that when they lit the menorah in the Mishkan, Hashem needs light. What did they light the menorah for? So the Gemara explains that the light of the menorah, the candelabrum, the menorah that was lit in the temple, was a, myst- a mystical light. It was the light that had emanated. The light that emanated from the menorah was called Oragonus. The Kabbalists talk about it. The light, the primordial light that the world was created with. The light that man saw only for 36 hours. Man lived for the 12 hours of Friday with that light. Even though he sinned, the light did not go, go out on Shabbos. So 24 hours of Shabbos. And Motzei Shabbos, when Shabbos ended, first Shabbat in the world ended, the world went dark. He thought he was dying. He thought that the world had come to an end. That's when he discovered fire. That's why we light fire on Havdalah on Motzei Shabbos in commemoration of the first time fire was lit in the world. But for Friday, this 12 hours of Friday, and the 24 hours of Shabbos, for those 36 hours, man lived at a level where he saw the hidden light in the world. The light by which the Gemara says you see through things. You don't illuminate the surface of things. The light shines through things. You could see within. It wasn't the light that shone from the externality. It was the kind of light that man was clothed in. His garments were. Yeah? Until the sin, he was clothed in light. The Hebrew word skin and the Hebrew word light are the same word. Or with an aleph and or with an ayin. Yeah, the only thing that changes is the aleph becomes an or. Becomes, the aleph becomes an ayin. <coughs> in Hebrew, the rule is that whenever aleph becomes an ayin, Yes, there's a rule. There are many dualities in the letters like this, but the classic one, when an aleph becomes an ayin in Hebrew, what you're dealing with is, the aleph is always the letter that indicates the spiritual, the transcendent, the, yeah, the, the, the higher. Aleph means the highest number. Aluf means that which is elevated, right? Aleph in Hebrew means to, to educate, to teach, to lift up to a higher level. Not in modern Hebrew. In modern Hebrew, in modern Hebrew which is anti-spiritual, Right, which is exactly the wrong grasp. La Aleph means to train to train dogs. That's what it means. La Aleph Klavim. That's what it means. To train mindlessly. But of course that anybody who has any sense of Hebrew knows how perverted that is. Aleph means to make to give the to give Aleph, to bring to the Aleph is the highest number, the same as Aleph is one, Aleph is a thousand. Right? That brings to the complete So the The Aleph in Hebrew is always the letter of light. Or begins with the Aleph. For that reason. And therefore when it says that man was clothed in garments of light, what's called Kotnot Or. Kotnot Or. He was clothed in garments of light. The meaning is how do you get clothed in garments of light? What does that mean? It means that when someone looks at you, they see through, they see the inside. What does it mean to be clothed in light? Light reveals. Light doesn't hide. Light reveals. Again, you have to understand... What does it mean to be clothed in light? Oite or kasalma, Hashem, wears light like a garment. What does that mean? To be clothed in light means that when someone looks at you, there's nothing hidden. 
That's what it means. Light means that which is the medium of revelation. To garments of light means that Adam was created in such a way, he had no clothes, there was nothing to hide. When you saw the externality, you saw the internality. That's why there was no shame. Shame is always where the inside is not the same as the outside. Then you feel ashamed. When inside is an angelic being and outside is an animal, then you feel ashamed and you need to cover yourself. But when inside is an angelic being and the, 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 the garments, the clothes are angelic garments, then you don't need to wear clothes. There's no, there's no disparity between the inside and the outside. That's why there was no shame. <coughs> After the sin, of course, Aleph to, when an Aleph in Hebrew becomes an Ayin, it always goes into its hidden or dark or heavy side. Any word in Hebrew, when you change the Aleph to an Ayin, you bring it, that's why Aleph, for example, is silent. It's the only letter that's silent in the Hebrew letter. Ayin is pronounced. Anybody who speaks Hebrew correctly, you can hear the ayin. It's one of the guttural letters. It's not a silent letter. The ayin brings it into tangible reality in the world. That's why ayin means an eye. That which reveals, makes, yeah, brings to revelation. That's what the ayin is. What's a ma'ayan in Hebrew? Al-ein hamayim. Al-ein hamayim. It means where the water comes out from the hidden into the revealed. Now that's what a ma'ayan is. It's the same as an ayin. So, when the aleph, which is transcendent, becomes ayin, it means it comes, it becomes... Brings it into the head. And therefore, after the sin, he became clothed in what we call or, with an ayin, which means skin. Which blocks, you cannot see the inside. That's why the Hebrew word ayin, vavresh, spells iver, blind. You can't see anymore. Aleph vavresh means light, you see. Ayin vavresh means blind, you can't see it. It hides. That's incidentally in English why they call this a hide. That's why the skin is called a hide. It comes from the Hebrew word or, which means iver. That's where it comes from, right? It blocks, you can't see. And that was the transition from, that's what happened. So that light died. Hanukkah is nothing other than rekindling the light that, do you understand what's going on here? That's when the Greeks came to darken the eyes of the Jewish people and make them forget the primal light, the primordial light. The Rokeach, one of the ancient commentaries, says that's why we light 36 candles on Hanukkah. 8 plus 7 plus 6 plus 5, yeah, etc., we light 36 candles. <coughs> Reminiscent of the 36 hours that the Oragonus, the hidden, unreve- the hidden mystical light, shone in the world. It shone for 36 hours. You're counting the shamas. That's what you're doing. You're probably counting the ninth light on each light. Right? Is that what you're doing? Probably. 36. 8 plus 7 plus 6. Who's a mathematical genius? <laughs> yes? Thirty-six, thirty-six. Eight plus seven plus six plus five, right? Yeah? You're a mathematician, aren't you? There's a formula for it, right? Work it out. Anyway, yeah? There are thirty-six lights. The reason is, we custom is, the Jewish custom is, we light thirty-six lights because each one for one of the hours during which man saw, lived by a light, that was so potent and so powerful, it even shone on Shabbos after the sin. Power of Shabbos. But when that light died, then the world went dark. And the history of humanity since then has been trying to remember. That's what it is. It's been an attempt to remember what that was. That's what the search for, for spirituality is. It's not an attempt to 
It's an attempt to rediscover and rekindle that which you know lies within. And therefore, that is the... I mean, there are many examples. The, the Gona Vilna says that the word nefesh, the word nefesh, which means the human soul, spells nerptil shemen. The three letters of nefesh stand for light, wick, and oil. The light, the flame, the wick, and the oil. That's the... Yeah, that's the... That's what the nefesh is. Ki Hashem nishmat adam. Ner Hashem nishmas adam. The candle of Hashem is the human soul. Right? The flickering... The, humans, the human nefesh, actually, not the soul. The, the nefesh, which is the connection to the body. That is the... <coughs> that is the candle. That is the candle, which is the... Yeah. And therefore, that is how we... The word shaman, of course, which is the oil is the same root in Hebrew as eight. Shmone, in Hebrew, and shemen, the same root, right? The concept is that shemen, oil, shemen means that which is beyond the minimum. Shamen, in Hebrew, means, yeah, seven is always, in Hebrew, seven is always the minimal, the minimal full expression of the world. Seven is always seven colors in the spectrum, seven notes in the musical scale that we use. That's why there's seven days in the week and seven fruits of Israel. Seven sides to the world, right? Three-dimensional world. Six sides and the seventh, which is the center that bonds them together into one. Eight is always... That's why Shiva in Hebrew is the same letters as Sivia, which means completely full. Sovea, completely full. Shemen means eight. Shmone goes beyond Sivia. Shamen, it's fat. Fat means beyond the minimum, right? That's what Shemen... That's what Shemen is, right? And therefore, eight is always one step beyond the natural. That's why we do bris miller, circumcision, on the eighth day. We're taking the body at its seventh level, again, deep mystical subject, and giving it the ability to transcend into spirituality. We take the most physical element of the body and give it the ability to transcend into Kedusha. That's why it's called eight. That's why eight is always the number of miracles in the world. And of course, it's no accident that the word shemen, which means oil, the same root, shmone, which is eight, rearrange the letter, spells neshama. The same letters, right? The nefesh is where the soul connects with the body. Neshama is where the soul connects with the higher soul. Nefesh is the lower part of the soul. Ruach is the higher part, and neshama is the connection with the spiritual world. That's a neshama, same letters. And of course, I'm sure your minds already, you've already figured out that the next permutation of neshama and shmone is mishnah. Because the mishnah, the mishnah is where the Torah connects, yeah, the higher, the oral law connects with the written law. It makes it higher connection. That's what Mishnah is. Why do you think we learn Mishnah for the Neshama of somebody who's died? The custom is to learn Mishnah. Because they reconnect. The Talmud says, just an example, Rebbe. Who is the author of the Mishnah? Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi. Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi, right? Rebbe. He was the codified editor of the Mishnah. So the Talmud says an incredible story about him. That when Rebbe died... He said to his students or his family, he said, daluk, there should be always a candle lit, mita the bed should be made, and the shulchan aruch, the table should be laid, meaning on Friday night, Shabbos, the house should be all prepared for Shabbos. That's what he instructed them, right? And a few other instructions. <coughs> after he died, he used to come home. After he died, he used to get back into his body and come back to make Kiddush for his family. Meskirish, Friday night, he used to come back. Rebbe, after death, every Friday afternoon, right, he used to get up, put back his body on, come back and make Kiddush. Until one day the maid, 
said to somebody outside, shh, be quiet, Rebbe's here. So then he stopped coming in order not to embarrass perhaps or, or co- raise questions about others who didn't. He stopped coming back. The question is, why was it Rebbe who re- reinvested himself in his body and came back? And why Kiddush? Because Mishnah is the connection between oral and written laws. That is the connection of the Neshama, which is the ability to connect the higher world with the body. Rebbe, who is the author of the Mishnah, do you understand? He is that energy in the world. He is the one who reconnects at will the spiritual and physical worlds. And obviously to make Kiddush on Friday night, where Shabbos meets the week, where the body of the week meets the Neshama of Shabbos, is exactly the moment. Yeah, there's much more to say here as well, but... That is why Rebbe was the one who was able to do that. Connecting, and of course it's no accident, Rebbe lived at the junction between the Mishnah and the post-Mishnahic age. He was the last of the Tanaim. The last, yeah, he connects with the post-Mishnahic age, which is the Gemara, where there's no more the revelation of Mishnah anymore. And it goes into, the, it's a junctional zone between soul and body, etc. So, I mean, it's, you follow it through, it, it should be obvious. So Hanukkah lies at that phase of history where the previous generations were able to see that light. The previous generations were the generations of prophecy where, where there was a direct revelation in the world where Hashem spoke and it was directly... Yeah, Nevoah means that prophets, until the men of the Great Assembly, what was the history? Let's get the history clear. What was the history? The world included a prophetic revelation. Now, the world looked nothing like it does now. The world was not dark like it is now. The world was light. When prophets walked the earth, it doesn't only mean, we have to understand this, it doesn't only mean that there were individuals who knew the future. It means that the whole world was luminescent. The whole world, for prophets to walk the earth, for Jews to be able to give rise to individuals who are prophets, the whole Jewish people has to be, prophets are like, if you want to know, a novi, a novi is like the head of a body which is the Jewish people. The head can only go up when the feet step up. If the body goes down, the head goes down. When the Jews sinned at the golden calf, Hashem said to Moshe when he was on the mountain, Lech rei ki shiches amcha. You go down because your people have sinned. You go down because they have sinned? Absolutely, because you're the head of a, of a supernal body. When the body of the Jewish people go down, then the highest one also goes down. When the body goes down far enough, then the head falls below the red line at which prophecy is... Yeah? And therefore, the generations of prophecy means that although only unique individuals, there were more than a million of those unique individuals in the Jewish people over the generations, over those centuries of prophecy. But when those individuals had prophecy, it means that the whole people were lifted to a level where they were part of a body that could receive prophecy. It was an incredible level. That was the the phase of Tanakh, when the Torah itself was handed down in written form, where the clarity was so great that we don't even have any... The only Torah we have from those generations is what they took by divine dictation. There's no record of any of those people, none of, none of those great sages, of saying anything of their own. There's no, Heim Amru They said three things. The only time you hear that is on Sheikh Nesazagdela, after prophecy dies. Before that, nobody said anything. They just transmitted Torah. There was no creative activity in the sense of, of fathoming the truth and constructing it and having an opinion. Each prophet simply was a receiver. He transmitted intact. There was no argument. There was no argument in the Jewish people. Can you imagine such a thing? Imagine... <laughs> no, there was no discussion, no debate, no argument about anything. There was total clarity. When an issue did arise, it was totally resolvable. The first time argument ever arose in the Jewish people was in the age of the Greeks. Yosef ben Yehuda, Yosef ben Yochanan. One of them killed by the Greeks. There was debate. You have to understand the history. Amazing thing. 
The Jewish people lived on a prophetic level. When prophecy is around, there's no halachic debates. There's no, there's no subject to human opinion. It's all totally clear. The ordeal human beings is another ordeal. What are you, human beings' ordeal? Idolatry. That's the ordeal. Not, yeah, not, not lack of clarity in Torah, but a immensely powerful appeal to, to transcend in the wrong direction. And what happens is that the men of the great assembly, including the last of the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, 2,400 years ago, they closed prophecy. When they closed prophecy, when they ended the phase of prophecy, people lost their drive to serve idols, to transcend into an idolatrous direction, and they lost their ability to hear one goes with the other. When you lose your drive to transcend into something higher, you lose your ability to receive from the same thing. The same, that transmitter and receiver, that's the source, the root of the human consciousness. When you take that out, it loses both its functions. Then the world went dark. What was the next generation? The men of the great assembly left the earth. And who was left? Shimon HaTzadik. Shimon HaTzadik. Right? The last remnant who had seen the people of the... had seen prophets, although he himself was not. Some sources syndicate that his name was Shimon HaTzadik. A prophet is one who sees, what we call a chose. A prophet sees, a seer. Shimon is called Shimon HaTzadik. He only hears. No more able to see. The, the, the light has gone out now. You have to hear in the darkness. Shimon HaTzadik. Tzadik also means that the junctional zone. Tzadik is also the zone of connection. needs more discussion as well. It's the bris, the covenant, that's what it is. A covenant is that which transmits loyally even when the truth is not obvious. That's what a covenant is, that's what a bris is. A treaty means that we stand by each other even when, even when the facts aren't clear because of our commitment, only because of our commitment. That's what bris means. That's why it's Shimon HaTzadik. What happens after Shimon HaTzadik? The next generation. Who was the next generation? Antignois Ish Seicho. Already a Greek name. Incidentally, when Shimon HaTzadik was alive, the miracle of the Western light, the Neir Maravi, burning miraculously, continued. Sometimes yes, sometimes not, but there was that miracle in the world, in the Temple, Beis HaMikdash. Alexander marched against Jerusalem. Alexander the Great marched against Jerusalem, And the, the, the people of the inhabitants of the, of the land at the time, the non-Jewish inhabitants, tried to get Alexander to destroy the Jewish population. So they told him, Mardubacha, that the, these Jews have rebelled against you. So he marched in preparation to destroy Yushalayim. Aided and abetted by these non-Jewish, whoever they were, now not the time to go into it, but they, <coughs> as he approached Yushalayim, <coughs> Shimon HaTzadik heard about it. So he put on the clothes, he was the Kohen Godel, <coughs> he put on the clothes of the high priest, and he went out with the elders to meet Alexander. Right? And as they came face to face outside Yerushalayim, Alexander got off his horse and bowed down to this Jew. So the people said, are you bowing down to a Jew? This Jew? Alexander said, the face of this man goes before me in my dreams before every battle, and he's the reason for my success. And he turned and left. and the Jew, the, the, That's what happened. The next generation, but the Greeks were already in charge. Alexander's empire divided itself up into three three components, and the Syrian Greeks were the ones in uh, the, that section of the Greek Empire. The, Israel was under their domain, jurisdiction. The next generation was Antignois. He n- no longer had seen prophets. He was already in isolation. That means he no longer had the clarity of even having seen a prophet. And of course, for the first time then in history, for the first time then in history, 
breakaway movements began who disputed the veracity and the intense Torah tradition. The first reforming reforming movement, right? The first movement to say that, well, Torah is not... He had two students called Tzadok and Baitis. They formed the Sadducees. Tzadok formed the Sadducees. What were they? They were people who said that Torah is true, but not the oral tradition. Not the rabbinic opinion. That's no longer true. That's what they said. Meaning that there's no longer Mishnah, you understand, the connection with the higher world. No connection with the higher world. How did they say it? They said that there's no world to come. There's no world after this. All you see, what you see is what you get. Greek ideology. In the Greek age, the Hellenist philosophy, these Jews said, Torah, definitely Torah is true. But it only applies in the world. There's no higher connection. Where did they get such an idea? They claimed they heard it from their teacher. Why? Because Antigonus once made the following statement. He said, the Torah does not speak of reward in the next world. He's quite correct, the Torah doesn't. It's contained in the oral tradition. The Torah doesn't openly speak about reward in the next world. So Antigonus said, Do not be like servants who serve their master in order to get a reward. Ella, rather be like Avodim, like servants who serve their master. Do not serve your master for reward. Serve Know that the reward will come, but do not be mercenary. Don't serve, don't live spiritually for reward. Do it because it's right, not because of a reward. That's what he taught. And they said, you hear what he said? He said, there's no reward. And of course, you could say such things, because when prophecy is no longer there to refer to, you can say what you want. And so the first breakaway movement that reinterpreted and broke the Torah tradition with its Tukim and the Baitis, that's what happened. And of course, that was the Greek Hellenistic period. In the next generation was Yosef and Yezir, Yosef and Yochanan, two Jewish sages who argued for the first time. Only one argument in the whole panorama of halakhic material, there was only one argument. They argued. That argument continued for three generations until <coughs> it got to Hillel and Shammai, who argued about three things. <coughs> and the students of Hillel and Shammai argued about thousands of things. Clarity had already broken down, differentiated, fragmented to a stage where there was a tremendous multiplicity of Torah opinions, each one having his own opinion. They said three things. Right? The men of the Great Assembly, for the first time, human opinion, and eventually became... And that's why the Talmud quotes everything it quotes in his name. Rabbi Kiva says this, Rabbi Talpan says that. It's his opinion, that's his opinion, vested in the human mind, or the fragments, the shards of Torah. But now have to be reconstructed. We have to reconstruct the truth from the broken pieces. That's why the Talmud constructs the truth from examining falsehood. The Talmud doesn't present correct arguments, it presents false arguments, and by exposing the, what we call Havaminas, by exposing the falsehood of a, re, of a line of reasoning, shows what must be the truth. That's how the Babylonian Talmud works. And of course, that's why the, that's why the, the Zohar, for example, the higher Kabbalistic work, says, Ta Chazi, come and see, invoking the clarity of prophecy, as it were. But the Babylonian Talmud says, Ta Shma, come and listen, you can't see anymore. You have to listen, you have to put it together in the darkness. Because we don't have prophecy anymore. And that was the story, Yosef ben Yoeza, Yosef ben Yochanan, one, one of those great leaders who had been taken out to be killed by the Greeks, in fact. And he saw his nephew who had become a Hellenist, <coughs> full of <coughs> importance and power and wealth. And his own nephew mocked him and said, look what happens to you when you observe Torah, right? You stick with your beliefs and you 
you remain loyal to your Torah tradition, you see you're about to be executed. You see what these Greeks are going to do to you, about to execute you. Isn't it proof that my way is correct? And Yosef looked at his nephew and he said to him, if this is what's happening to a person who's attached himself and remains loyal, can you imagine what's going to happen to you? At which point he instantly corrected himself. Committed himself. Recommitted. But that was in the Greek day. And this, these, these philosophical, these issues were, were possible only because there was no light of prophecy. Shimon HaTzadik, connected to the men of the Great Assembly. Antignois, no longer connection. False students who misrepresent. Who is in the next generation? Yeshua ben Prachia. Nitai Abeli. Yeshua ben Prachia was the teacher of the founder of Christianity. The next movement that detached itself, right? That was the generation. Nitai Abeli, Yeshua ben Prachia. He was the Rebbe of no less than that individual who founded, who became the, to whom was ascribed the foundation of Christianity. Who was one of the students of the Tanaim and broke away. And from then on, of course, it's been a story in every generation of people breaking down the Torah tradition, reclaiming, claiming their own, their own versions, their own falsifications, their own... And there's no one to say they're wrong, because there's no point of reference. The only point of reference is in the hearts and minds of the sages. <coughs> there's an inner clarity. If you don't have that clarity within yourself, there's no external place to... There's no point of reference externally. That's the nature of the oral law. And at that junction between clarity and lack of clarity, between light and darkness, that's when the Hanukkah miracle of a small light that burns, where they rekindle a light in the darkness after the Greek contamination, in the inner sanctum of the Beis HaMikdash, that's exactly where Hanukkah fits. That is the symbolism, that's what it means to be able to light that light. The concept is that there's a first light, which is the light that is of infinite strength, which illustrates, that means which, by which you can see the whole, you can see all of the world, the whole... <coughs> of the spiritual world, and then it's followed by a second light, which is compared to the light, the supernal light by which you can see through things, it's nothing, it's a small, it's no more than a small candle in a Jewish window, it's almost nothing, it's as physical and small, almost pathetically small, small as you can imagine. But there's more power in that light in a Jewish window than in all the, in, in, in all the might of the armies of the, of the world of the external that's ranged against us. That is the... <coughs> that's the junction. Let's take it one step further. There are two kinds of miracles. Let's try and put our heads into this. This subject of Nisi, miracles, right? So, it should be obvious that miracles that transcend nature, those phenomena by which... <coughs> you see a higher hand. <coughs> those phenomena, those miracles occurred only in the first phase of history. Right? Those, those, those events occurred only in the first phase of history. Again, let's get this clear. There are two kinds of Nisim. There are two classes of miracles. Right? Strictly speaking, actually, to be complete, there are three. Don't get too complicated. But there, let's say like this, there are two classes, two categories of miracles. You have what's called a nes nigle, a revealed miracle, and then you have what we call a nes nistar, a hidden miracle. Right? The nisim, nis, the nig, nisim niglim, revealed miracles, they happen until Hanukkah. 
The last time in the history of the world that a revealed miracle occurred, that oil burned for eight days, it was only enough to burn for one day. That's called a revealed miracle. The last time that ever happened was at Hanukkah. The last time we saw, we had any message, we had any communication with the world of the miraculous, right, which is synonymous with prophecy. The Hanukkah miracle was, yes, that sort of miracle, but no, it did not have prophecy attached. It was that junctional zone. After that time, we saw only miracles that are called Nisim Nistarim, hidden miracles. To this day, we see miracles, only hidden miracles. What's the difference? With one exception. I'll try, if we get time, we go into that. It's like this. A Nes Nigle is a revealed miracle. The difference between a hidden and revealed miracle, to put it plainly, is like this. A hidden miracle is something that's incredibly unlikely, a ridiculously impossible coincidence, but technically not impossible. A revealed miracle is one where a law of nature is broken, where something literally, tangibly, physically impossible happens. Right? To make it absolutely clear, a person is running, and they run off the edge of a cliff by mistake. You run off the edge of the cliff, and you start falling. You grab onto a little branch of a tree, a root growing out of the cliff face, and you hang dangling over 5,000 feet of jagged rocks and yeah. as you hang in that situation the thing begins to pull itself out of the cliff and you're about to become very much part of the scenery at that moment at that moment it just so happens that standing up on the edge of the cliff is a man practicing throwing ropes over the edges of cliffs that day <laughs> and as he does you happen to grab it and he pulls you up right that is a hidden miracle why can we call it hidden <coughs> because there's no physical reason that that couldn't happen. The only thing that is, that is impressive about that is that it, that particular thing happened at that particular place and time, which statistically is just completely beyond anything that anybody would consider reasonable. However, if you are very, very cynical and skeptical, you can say, well, the world's been around for about three billion years. Somewhere in three billion years, once, it's not impossible that at that moment, uh, that's, and therefore... That is a hidden miracle. A revealed miracle is where you run off the edge of a cliff, hang onto a root of a tree, as it pulls out of the cliff face, you suddenly levitate up and float back on to the cliff edge, right? That is what we call a revealed miracle. The difference is that the first one would leave you religiously inspired probably for about a day. This would probably leave you religiously inspired for about a week, probably. But... The only, difference is, the only difference is that, in, technically speaking, a law of nature has been broken. In an incredible coincidence, the reason that you get expired about it and then fade out is because, technically speaking, it's not impossible. The second class, the, the, the class of miracles that are revealed miracles are where a physical impossibility occurs. Actually, in the depth of these things, they're really not different. But to our experience, right, we accept, we can accept an incredible coincidence, it, 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 it um, stirs or unsettles, right? The foundation of attachment to the empiric, the world of, of, of physical habit, much less than a... <coughs> those are the two classes. Now, the principle in Jewish history is like this. Only until Hanukkah, until the Greeks, did we witness hidden miracles. And the Rambam rules, the Rambam writes definitively, that a revealed miracle occurs only in the presence of a prophet. And think about it. Any of the miracles in Tanakh, the splitting of the sea, the splitting of the Jordan, reviving of the dead, twice by Elisha, once by Leo, all the miracles you care to name were always done in the presence of and by the agency of a prophet. Because both of these things occupy the same space in the spiritual world. Prophecy means that a hidden, the hidden hand reveals itself 
It means there's a direct communication, and miracles mean that there's the, the direct revelation of that higher hand in the world, the two go hand in hand, so to speak. After prophecy leaves the world, there can be no more revealed miracles. Because that light has left the world. A miracle is a revelation in, a, yeah, it, it, in, in, the, so, in the seeming pattern of nature. Huh? There's a break where you see what lies behind nature. That's why the word nace in Hebrew means a banner. Like a banner on the hill. Right? It means that which is essentially uplifted. You've given your servant a banner by which to be uplifted. Like a banner on the hill, you see it clearly. <coughs> a miracle is that which clearly indicates where the center is. That can no longer occur. And since then, all we see is the kinds of miracles that are things that are, that are, that are coincidences where nature does not, is not set aside. Hanukkah is the junction between those two. Now there's a problem here, which Sean just mentioned briefly, and perhaps we'll leave it at that. Let's just try and add this dimension, is that if you know any Talmudic, if you have any experience in Gemara, you'll know that there seems to be something that breaks this rule. Namely, let's get it clear. <coughs> All the generations of prophecy, you have prophecy, you have revealed miracles. Things like the sea splitting, the Jordan, yeah, etc. Then you have Hanukkah, the last time there's that revelation of that kind of miracle, and from then on you only have coincidental type of incidents. The problem is that the Talmud, which is beginning from the phase of Hanukkah and on, is full of revealed miracles. Anybody who knows anything about the Gemara knows that it's packed with absolutely revealed miracles. How many examples do you need? Uh, Right? His daughter pours vinegar into the Shabbos lights and he says to her, she's distressed about it, he says, don't worry, light the vinegar. So she lights the vinegar and the vinegar burns. So he said to her, what's the problem? Let the one who says oil should burn say that vinegar should burn. Huh? Vinegar burns. Rabbi ben wife was on a higher level, if, yeah, I mean, to a higher level than he was. What miracles could he perform? The lighting of the vinegar... The Gemara says that he put his foot over an adder's hole. He wanted to teach his students. He said to his students, I'd like to show you that only sin kills. Adders don't kill, sin kills. So he confidently put his foot over. The Gemara says that the adder came out, bit him, and it died. (laughs) And the later commentaries ask, how on earth was he allowed to endanger his life to teach a spiritual lesson? You don't take your life, you don't... And the answer is, there was no danger to his life. <coughs> Snakes don't kill, sin kills. That's what he taught. His wife was on a higher level. They were so poor that she couldn't even afford to break the chalas for Shabbos. But she was ashamed that the other women were baking and she didn't. So she used to light a fire under her oven, <coughs> although there was nothing in it. And when she opened it, there were chalas. <coughs> etc. Marukva and his wife, it says, went into a fire. Marukva and his wife, we're talking about in the Gemara times, not even in the Mishnah times, we're talking about, uh, <coughs> let's see, about 1700 years ago. <coughs> about 1600 years ago. That's all. Marukva and his wife were giving money to a person, and they didn't want him to see who they were, and he tried to chase them to discover their identities, so they went into a baker's oven. 
And they stood there in the fire, waiting for the men to disappear. And the Gemara only tells you the story to show you that it's better to go into an oven than embarrass somebody in public. Not to show you that they were capable of surviving in a fire. Again, it seems that his wife was on a higher level. This is not pleasant, pleasant stuff to have to think about, unfortunately. But <coughs> it seems that the wife was on a higher level. <coughs> because we know that while they were standing in the fire, it says that his feet began to get hot. Her feet did not. They were both protected from the fire, but his feet began to get hot. So when she saw that, she said, stand on my feet. So he stood on his wife's feet, and she could see that he was a little distressed. So she said to him, look, don't worry. The reason, the reason that my feet aren't burning on yours are, is that when poor people come to the house looking for charity, I feed them. And Rashi says, bread and salt. Again, it's a long, we don't have to go now into the details, but the meaning, just very briefly, the meaning is that a man, spiritually, is considered to be the spiritual energy. A man is supposed to be the source, connection to source. And a woman is supposed to be the bringing into reality. That's how it works. The man begins the process, the woman gives birth. That's the process. So what she meant, what she was telling her husband, was, you're a man. Your potential in spirituality is potential energy. When you give charity, you give money. Money's potential, money's not food. Money is only the power of seed. It only can be translated into reality. So you, yeah, I, as a woman, I don't give money like you just gave to that poor man. I feed them, Rashi says, bread and salt right down to the condiments. And therefore, I'm protected to the bottom of my feet. My Kedusha, do you understand this? My Kedusha goes right down to the earth. Yours as a man is in the higher world, and therefore your feet are... It's a deep idea, very deep. Many deep things. Think about the, think about the name Marukva. What does that mean? So deep things, very deep things, yeah. Very deep, very deep. So they were stood in a fire. What other miracles do you want? Splitting the Jordan? Splitting a river? The Gemara says one of the Tanoim was going with his Arab, his Arab uh, helper or guide. He came to the river called yeah, He came to the river and he said, split, I want to cross. So the river refused to split. He said, if you don't split, I'll dry you up forever. And the river split and he went across and then he turned back and said, what about the Arab? The river split again. His Arab crossed. So, again, you understand? The question the commentaries ask is, what's the big deal about splitting the Jordan if it could be done like this by people in a late post-prophetic era? What's the big deal? We want revival of the dead? <coughs> revival of the dead, mentioned in the Talmud, many, was, it could be performed by even the, even the Moroim. One of the classic commentaries says that anybody mentioned in the Talmud was capable of reviving the dead. How many examples do you need? The Gemara says that Rebbe and Antoninus were great friends. Rebbe, whom we mentioned before, was a close friend of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor at the time. And he was a student of his. He was a very great man, Marcus Aurelius. Very great man. And he secretly used to learn with Rebbe. He used to come through a hidden channel to Rebbe's home at night, study with him, insist that he would, he would bend down on his hands and knees for Rebbe to climb on his back to get up into bed. Rebbe was a very old man. Rebbe tried to prevent him from doing that. It wasn't fitting for a king to behave in that fashion. And he used to study with him. And the Gemara says on one occasion, this Roman emperor came to Rebbe's chamber and he brought a slave with him for an escort. As he walked into the chamber, he killed the slave. He used to kill the slave, so no evidence. Leave his corpse outside and he walked in. The commentaries ask how he could, if he was a great man spiritually, this Roman, which he certainly was. What was justification for killing slaves? Um, answers given to that. When he walked into Rebbe's chamber, he found him with one of his students. One of the junior Tanoim. So he said to Rebbe, I, I asked you not to be seen. I don't want to be seen here with anybody. I don't, I don't want anybody to see me. So I don't want to meet in the presence of this young student. So Rebbe said to him, Lays Dain Bar Inish. He's not human. Don't worry about him. He's not human. <laughs> so the Roman said, <coughs> he was distressed by it. So the Roman said like this, <coughs> he said to the student, 
Could you please step outside and ask my slave to step in? Knowing that that would, that would keep him occupied. No? So the Mishnah says, the Mura says, the Tana stepped outside and he found a corpse. And he had a, he had a problem. To disobey a king is, uh, not a, is not fitting for the honor of a king. To schlep in a corpse is also not fitting for a king. So he says, He brought him back to life. And he marched in with a slave. So when, 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 uh, when Antonina saw this, he said to Rebbe, I know that Kizutra, the least of your students could perform such a thing. So we have the evidence here of this Roman that the least... And the Gemara is full of... The Gemara says, I think Rabbi and Reb Zeri were having a Purim Surah together. One of them was drinking too much. He shechted the other one. Killed him. He leaned across and slit his throat. <laughs> the next day... The next day when he saw what he did, he brought him back to life. He brought him back to life. The next year, I invited him to eat with him again and he said, No, thanks. He said, <laughs> But... The Gemara says, Barath Kahana... When he came to Eretz Israel, right, he, uh, old story there, and eventually he looked at him, he looked at him and he died. And when he heard that he made a mistake, he went to his grave, he brought him up. He said, let's go back to town. He said, no, I'm quite happy here. So, <laughs> who says? When he was about to go back into his grave, he said, one, one second before that, he answered me all the following halakhic questions. He got all the answers from me, and he went back to his grave. He went back to town. I mean, you're talking... <clears throat> talking about the Talmud here. You're talking about the, the, This is Torah. This is not... So the question we have to ask is, if they could perform miracles like this, these are certainly revealed miracles. These are not coincidences. These are certainly revealed miracles. If prophecy ended, how were they able to perform revealed miracles? And um, furthermore, very difficult, the Rambam says that the pr- you need a prophet to, for a miracle to take place. This is explicitly after all prophets had left the world. And furthermore, the Rambam brings in the laws of validating a prophet, says the Rambam, that the, one of the prime methods of validating a person's prophecy is if he can perform a miracle. But how does that make any sense? If all the Tanoim and Amoiroim, long, hundreds of years after prophecy left the world, could at snap of the fingers, so to speak, they could generate miracles, then how does it become a proof? That a, are you with me? If they could perform revealed miracles where there were no more prophets alive, how can you claim that ability to perform a miracle is proof of prophecy? You see plenty of them did it who weren't anywhere near the level of prophecy. And furthermore, you can ask another question. Is miracles in the Torah, in Tanakh, in biblical time, were extremely ph- great phenomena, extremely, when the sea splits. Right? For all of history, all of the world's history, we remember that as a cosmic phenomenon. When the Jordan splits, when, when re- the dead are revived, when Elisha revives the dead child, you remember? And the Torah describes him as having twice the spirituality of Eliyahu because he only revived one dead person. He revived... Talking about (coughs) revival of the dead as a a, a cosmic phenomenon. So why does the Torah make such a fuss of miracles when the people who are infinitely less than those people could do what you call a a dime a dozen? They could... You hear the... And one of our classical sources who talks about it indicates that it fits exactly into the pattern we've been discussing. And again, without too much detail, I'll just say the idea. The idea is like this. You have to understand, when miracles used to occur beforehand, in the generation of the prophecy, in the time, the, fist, the history, the phase of history, of revealed miracles, the reason those miracles are so enormous is because they are direct revelations of Hashem Himself. The prophet brings Hashem's presence into the world. It brings His words into the world. When a prophet stands there and a miracle occurs, the sea splits, or the dead are revived, you are seeing a divine revelation. And that's why it's such big news.
Subsequently, when Hashem steps back from the world, and He leaves the world in darkness, then the sages can perform miracles, not because they're that great, but because the world is so dark. The keys are now given to human beings. Again, in the generation of prophecy, Hashem holds the keys directly. No human being can move. Yes, it's direct revelation. When a miracle happens, it's because a prophet is directly in connection, and Hashem Himself is doing it. That's what's such a big news about a miracle. And that's why it's a proof of prophecy that a miracle occurs. But after Hashem steps back after Hanukkah, after Hashem steps back from the world, and He gives over the running of the world to the sages of the oral law. And therefore the voltage drops to it, incomparably the voltage drops. But in that reduced voltage, the controls, the, 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 the reins of control in the world, are now in the, when it says, Heim Amrush, listen carefully, Heim Amrush Shadvarim, they said three things. And what's the next statement that says there? Listen carefully, the world stands on three things. This is what they came along and said. The world stands on three things. The world stands on Torah, divine service, which means sacrifices or prayers, and the giving of kindliness, the, kind, the acts of kindliness. And the commentaries say, what do you mean the world stands on those three things? Did they have to tell me that? Until now I didn't. What, are the, what, are, what is this post-prophetic era coming to tell me the world stands on these three qualities? What happened? What, what's news here? Until then the world did not stand? Of course it did. The answer is, oh no, it didn't. Until then the world stood on Hashem's word directly. But when Hashem steps back from the world and leaves the world in darkness, now the world stands on the shoulders of those who are masters of Torah. And every miracle in the Tanakh, in the Talmud, you'll see was performed by somebody great in one of those areas. Revival of the dead Rebbe, master of Torah. Marukva and his wife, masters of kindliness, giving charity, him, to the, him the money and she the bread. Once you master one of those areas in the world, you become a great master of one of these three pillars of Torah in the world, you hold the keys. Today, of course, in the, uh, uh, needless to say, needless to say, today we're not on a generation of prophecy and today we're not a generation of... Uh, our generation. In our generation, we... we, we we're not at the bottom of the barrel in our generation. We're somewhere in the mud underneath the barrel in our generation. We, right, we, we, yeah. Today, the only thing we may occasionally see is the, is the occasional coincidence. Right, which you have to be sensitive and have your eyes peeled to see that sort of thing. And it's a tremendous merit to see things like that. When something organizes itself in your life, when a stupendous coincidence occurs, and you see Hashem's hand that way, because we have no other options. We don't see revealed miracles. We haven't seen one of those since Hanukkah. Right? 2,200, 2,300 years ago. And to see <coughs> miracles that are revealed, that are generated by the power of human spirituality, that we certainly don't see. <coughs> right? We certainly don't see that. To be able to snap your fingers and burn vinegar? To be able to put your foot over the, over the viper's thing and have it die when it bites you? To be able to produce bread in an empty oven? We don't see those. We only see today the incredible coincidences that are completely hidden, where you have to have eyes to see in the darkness, right? We don't see, we're not clothed in light anymore. We're clothed only in the hides that hide the light. That's where we are. <coughs> Things that appear to be revealed miracles today are only, yeah, if you see witch doctors, for example, I've seen witch doctors do things that are physically impossible. I've seen them do it. Using certain energies, certain natural energies in the world. It's not, uh, it's not this level and it's not that level. But that's not tonight's subject. The point is that <coughs> the point is that we live in this era where the world has now gone dark, we don't see this, and Hanukkah was the last vestige, the last connection, a flicker of a light where there were no prophets around, but one of those last revealed miracles where, where a light burned <clears throat> longer than it should have 
is the the movement, right? And that's the last. And therefore, you have to understand this. Incidentally, you know that's one of the famous. Maybe we'll finish with this. This is one of the famous answers. You know the, the classical question about Hanukkah. You, you you must know this, right? The classical question about Hanukkah can't possibly study the subject without registering this and adding your own your own answer to this question. The most famous question about Hanukkah is. There was enough oil for one day, right? You should be ashamed if you haven't thought of this yourself, this question. There was enough oil for one day, and it burned for eight. So the miracle was only seven. Okay, there was enough oil for one day, right? <coughs> and it burned for eight. So why we should be celebrating seven days of miracle, not eight. What was miraculous about the first day where there was oil for one day? You understand? This is a famous question in Hanukkah. In fact, there's a book published called Neir Lemea, which has a hundred answers to this question. A hundred answers to this question. And of course, you haven't lived until you've said your own. You haven't lived until you've struggled with and said your own. It's not worth being alive unless you... <coughs> but I suggest you one, just one answer that pulls together what we've said tonight. The eighth day we celebrate together with the seven because it's exactly what we are. We, our celebration is bringing the miraculous into that day of the natural. <coughs> the reason we light eight days, we light seven. Again, don't, yeah, you can say your own answer here and there's 99 others at least. And many others have been said. Which itself is a fantastic thing. Do you see what comes out of Hanukkah? More Torah. The Greeks came to make us forget it and to darken our eyes. Yeah, so we forget Torah. That's what they wanted to do. What comes out of this? One question on Hanukkah with at least a hundred answers, a tremendous blossoming of Torah. And where is this Torah said? In the subject of the light that they tried to extinguish. And if that doesn't speak out the heart of the Jewish people. <coughs> but that's exactly the idea. We light eight days, not for the, s- the seven we light for the miracle. The eighth day we light to show that the natural is miraculous too, even though you may not see it easily. And that's where we live. We live by kindling a light that is entirely natural. Somebody walking past the house they see a little some ancient festival of these Jews. That's all they see. But to you, you should have the eyes to see that in that light, that small light where the wick is joining <coughs> the flame, <coughs> oil, drawing the oil, producing a flame, that nair neshama, that nair that's called nefesh, in, the la- in, in, in that light, you should be able to see, right? we have to teach ourselves to see, that in that small, almost insignificant, almost pathetically small light, it's possible to see the Oragon as a hidden light. Most of it.